Hey, football fans, this is Diana Rossini from The Athletic. Get the top stories in pro football snapped directly to your inbox with our latest NFL newsletter, Scoop City. Jacob Robinson and I will bring you the daily scoop of top NFL articles, posts, and podcasts every Monday to Friday. Sign up for free now at theathletic.com backslash scoop. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome to The Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Fun show for you guys today. I think only on this podcast would we do a two-part show about pre-draft offensive line prospects and the different ways that we can talk about them because we're really catering to the biggest audience possible here. We already did the this year's prospects. You have, may have already listened to that earlier today. We'll talk about those guys with Dane Brugler and Brandon Thorne really digging into the 2023 class. So if you haven't gone to listen to that, please do. But beyond those specific guys and what their outcomes or what their prospects look like in the NFL, the other side of this conversation that I wanted to dig into is why guys drafted in the first couple rounds, of which there are going to be plenty in this year's class, don't work out. You know, I think most people that even are big fans of football are going to look at guys drafted 50th overall that didn't end up becoming an offensive line starter and not really understand why. You know, offensive line play is kind of a black box for a lot of people. So I wanted to explore some of that. Why are these guys that are drafted relatively high? Why haven't some of them worked out? And what does that kind of negative timeline look like for players with that sort of draft position? To help me do that, I wanted to invite on two longtime NFL offensive linemen who have seen the league and seen those guys at those positions from every single angle during you know, a couple decades combined in the NFL. First off, friend of the show, longtime contributor to what we do here. It's Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing very well. Really appreciate you helping us do this and joining us for the first time 10-year NFL veteran, longtime NFL offensive tackle. It's Marshall Newhouse. Marshall, thank you very much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. I have to be the guy, and Mitch respects this. I got 11, so you got to give me that. 11? Okay, I'm sorry. Yes. I thought it was only yeah. 10. I apologize. All 11 I is a get very... to 10, and they're like, all right, I got my 10. I'm going to go, but you get that one more. That's right. a big one. How many did you have, Mitch? Nine. That's all right. Oh, there you go. Right on, right on the nose. 20 years combined. All right. I think the few all pros in the in the Super Bowl win is enough to kind of get you 10. You're You're a... You're gifted the tenth year. Right, we'll, we'll we'll do that. We'll give that one to you. If you could gift me the current market value of the offensive lineman, uh, that would be nice too. Which <laughs> I'm sure Marshall is, just sees these contracts go up and up, and you know every every generation has the the bitterness once the the salary cap explodes. So I want to talk about you know some specific guys over the last decade or so that either you guys watched or you guys are aware of, but also just some of these considerations on a general level. You know why these guys who have the draft pedigree don't always shake out. So Mitch, I want to start with you. Just on a, a big picture level, if I asked you the number one contributor that you think leads to guys falling short of expectations when they come into the league along the offensive line, what would you say is the main driver of that? It's probably some sort of technical flaw that doesn't get addressed, whether it's through the offensive line coach, through the individual, through the system they're in. Uh, it could be as simple as someone like not quite understanding how leverage works. And in college, they were bigger and stronger and they could out physical dudes and they could just get away with being an athlete. And they get to the NFL, you got to be a little more skilled and like that thing doesn't just click. 
you know, sometimes it's, it's timing. It's like punch timing. You just can't quite get it. You're either a split second early or a split second late. And obviously that can do you in. So like, there's usually some sort of technical thing, um, that I think it starts with. Cause I would imagine, I know we'll talk about the mental side of things too, but for the most part, guys are confident enough in themselves to have gotten to the NFL. So they believe in themselves. They know that deep down, even if they're like me, a you know, fear of failure motivator, like I still knew I was a good player. I was good enough to be drafted, good enough to be starting all that stuff. Um, so usually it's the technical thing goes first and then you start doubting yourself and then the vicious cycle starts. Marsh, what would you say? I think the overarching thing that we all acknowledge is the mental health thing, but it's still kind of nebulous. It, it's so case by case, but I think, from a, a more uh, tangible side, it's it's play awareness and like the proprioception of like, where am I in relation to everyone else in the field and what my job is and how do I use what Mitch mentioned leverage? Because that there's guys who have short arms who overcome that because they have a awareness of their body. There's guys who overcome lack of height, lack of foot speed or whatever because they're aware of where they are and they understand leverage. <laughs> like I wrestled in high school and that gave me a weird sense of like, how to overcome if there is a guy who has longer arms than me, is more athletic than me. And so that to me is from all the, you know, the physical build that God creates that can overcome a lot of that stuff. So talking about the leverage thing specifically, Mitch, like what, what is an example of a way that you could use either physical power or physical tools in college that maybe you can't get away with in the NFL and guys sometimes struggle to bridge that gap? I mean, the biggest one that sticks out to me is stopping a bull rush. You know, in college, uh, there's a lot of guys who kind of do the headbutt and grab, and you don't really need to use that much technique. The guy you're going against, you know, might be second string all pack 12 but he's not going to sniff an nfl roster and he's just not quite big enough or strong enough to make it work when you're not using the right technique and you know that's understanding how to be strong uh if you line up most of the nfl offensive linemen maybe the side of trent williams and trent brown you're not just going to be able to like punch a defense alignment and stop him it's all about figuring out how to get under them and get their momentum going upwards. You know, it's not just a pure, I'm stronger than you. I'm going to stop you as I'm going backwards and you're running into me. So understanding how to manipulate that leverage and that momentum and that energy is really the key. And you can, you know, move guys in the run game in college. Again, if you're the guy who's 6'5", 325, you run a 4'9", like you have a ton of force behind you to be that big and that fast and to move that way. And you can get away with it when the guys you're going against aren't either big or strong enough to make that uh, a downside, that lack of technique, that lack of leverage, or they're just not good enough to, you know, kind of jump around you or or do whatever it is that, uh, you know, you see a lot of these linemen who are more kind of straight line athletes and I watch them on, you know, wide zone, you're the weak side tackle kind of point of attack. I love watching that block and, you know, a guy like Makai Becton's really good at it, but he also to me kind of predetermines like, all right, this is the forework I'm going to take. If it lands and the defensive end plays true technique, like again, he's 683, 68, 380 coming at you. Like he's going to toss you out the club. But if you're able to do something funky, do like a Von Miller rip move or make an inside move, you know, some of those guys watching them, it's more of an all or nothing move. And 80% of the time it works well and it looks fantastic. But there's that element of like staying within yourself and understanding how to actually use that leverage properly. So you're able to react to any situation. And that's where it gets a little more tough when the guys you're going against are legitimately like the best guys you've ever faced. Marshall, that idea of kind of learning how to sit down and deal with the bull rush and those kind of leverage issues, is that something where 
it's about how often you work on it. Some guys, it doesn't matter how much they work on it. They're never going to get it. Is that more about understanding what you need to work on or about having sort of an innate skill to get there? Uh, that's, that's a thing that can be worked on. I mean, that is a, on a base level is a strength thing. And then it's a, there's guys who will do, there's, it's hard to simulate that perfectly in practice or off season or whatever. But there's guys who, when we get in pads, who do it and there, there's some tidbit that they're taught or that, that clicks after one rep, it's like, okay, that makes sense. I can incorporate that into my game, into my sets, into my, how I game plan against this pass rusher. And those other guys who get, are going to get a, 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 the crown of their helmet under their chin for the rest of their career and they'll never figure it out. Like to me, he, who's, you know, a great example is a guy like Lane Johnson who, as a freak, you know, his, his trajectory is, is unlike anyone else's. He, no one can pass block the way he pass blocks. But what, if people watch his sets and they see him accept a bull rush, it looks like he's just catching. And what they don't understand is that A, Lane is really freakishly strong. B, he's in position. But C, he is, his levers, his arms are lifting the DN after the bull rush, centimeter by centimeter, inch by inch, until he has no more momentum. He's lifting him on an angle upwards to stop the momentum. And Lane pulls it off because he has his other things, but it just clicked for him. He's like, yeah, I can initially get hit, initially get the bull rush, but I'm lifting this guy without him really even realizing it. And he's stopping his momentum. So yeah, the guy's a foot, two feet away from Jalen Hurts, but Lane's won the block already. Like it's for three, four, five seconds into this play, the block is one. And so a guy like that can do it with a little less effort because he's so naturally gifted. But there are guys who aren't as gifted who still can figure that out. It's just a matter of do you figure it out because you're like, again, I talked about proprioception. Do you have an idea of where you are in the world, your space, and how to use your body? And there's some guys who are the prototypical tackle guard and just never figure that part out about understanding like how they move their limbs and how all that stuff works. And it's I don't think there's a true indicator of someone who's going to get it or not get it. But you can definitely tell the guys who get so the, it. So I want to expand on the Lane Johnson one, especially because, like I was saying, guys can kind of do that in college where you're not Lane Johnson, obviously, but compared to maybe the guys you're going against in college, you are more like Lane Johnson compared to NFL rushers. And so it works because you can kind of absorb that initial split second of contact before you land the hands, before you start lifting, and before you get that true leverage. It worked in college because the guys you were going against weren't uh, – you know, these freak guys, Miles Garrett or Khalil Mack or Joey Bosa, who can bring the power that those guys can, you get to the NFL and this is where that's, that's a technique flaw that you need to work on. And this is where it breaks off into the different buckets of like, is it coaching? Is it the team? Is it you? But you're probably going to stick with, all right, this worked in college. I'm just going to keep working at it. It's not working. It's not working, but I know it's going to work because it's worked before. Maybe your coach is trying to teach you something different. You know, most coaches, the side of Paul Alexander don't love the double under as a true <laughs> pass blocking technique uh, for for offensive tackles also you know paul had his 340 explain the double under very quickly i have a story about that but yeah yeah so on. the double under is essentially both of your hands going underneath the defender to then lift him so if anyone has watched lane johnson block as an offensive tackle that's what marshall was describing he kind of takes his pass set he explodes out of a stance. He gets to the spot. He basically forces you to bull rush him. This is another key on why he's so good. He basically dictates what the rusher can do by his set. You know, he's taken away getting around. Is the that corner. possible because of like explosiveness, where he can get to that spot because he's so athletic? 
Yeah, it's that. And it's also okay. what Marshall said, the proprioception of knowing where he needs to be on the field. Because there are guys who never quite get that sense. And they're always a kick too deep or a kick too shallow. And they give up the corner. But Lane knows exactly where that spot is that he needs to settle. And this is where, I mean, we're going off on different tangents, but it's fun. As a vertical setter, a guy who likes to set deeper, most I think coaches who don't understand vertical setting and most players who haven't done it before, they think it's a much more passive pass set that you're not really doing mm-hmm. anything the first second or two. You're just kind of setting back and waiting for them. But you're actively forcing a guy to rush the way you want him to. You're setting deep enough that based on his sense of where the pocket is, where the quarterback is, you've probably taken away around the corner because you're too deep. They know if they try to sink a move, they're not going to get to the quarterback around the corner. You've also taken away the inside because you're deep and you're square and there's space. And the guy's not just going to go inside when you're sitting there square with space in front of you. And so all he's left to do is think, ah, crap, I kind of just have to bull rush him. There's nothing else for me to do on this. And whether it's conscious or subconscious, it kind of feels like you get like an 80% bull rush. It's kind of a defeated bull rush that he knows. I now have to bull this guy who's in a perfect position. He's not on his heels. You know, I'm not landing a bull because I saw him with some technique deficiency. So that's what Lane uses as his advantage. So getting back to the double under, you know, that's a technique that works for big guys and specific players. And so if a guy in college is, is good at it because he's a big dude, he's really strong, he gets to the NFL, his coach is not coaching it, his normal technique is not working, he's now somewhat clashing with his coach where his coach wants him to you know, throw his hands traditionally, he starts throwing his hands, he starts getting his hands chopped because he's probably going to lean forward because he's not used to throwing his hands traditionally, then he's going to say, ah, his technique doesn't work for me anyway, and you get caught in this vicious cycle of like not quite knowing what to do, and that's where <laughs> making sure that your coach understands what to do and kind of collaborating with him which again most young guys you don't quite collaborate with your coach you're either a guy who buys into the teachings and hopefully they work or you don't buy in and your coach probably hates you and you're going to be off the team in a couple years regardless Um, so that's one thing that we see a lot um, that the the technical side doesn't match up with what the player wants to do or what he's comfortable with and then the coach isn't quite able to teach him you know that leverage that ability to block properly and to make it collaborative so those i I think a big question i would have from that is how do these technical deficiencies kind of arise if they worked in college and it seems from that answer it's twofold it's either because the competition is so much better it's no longer applicable i can't get away with the same stuff or because i'm being taught to do something different Marshall, what do you think is the more common answer to that? Why do these things arise? Is it a coaching thing or is it a a change in competition level thing? I mean, eventually everyone, you know, who sticks around the league adjusts to the the new speed, the new strength, the new stuff. To me, it's about fit and fit with uh, O-line, his coach uh, and their scheme and the idea of what they're trying to accomplish. Like, I played for eight different offensive line coaches. And so if you can imagine trying to <laughs> You guys ha- can't adjust. see that Mitch is shaking his head right now. <laughs> <laughs> you, if you can imagine trying to adjust whatever your natural strengths and abilities are and all of the stuff that you've learned and packaged before and trying to, like Mitch says, not pit, like acquiesce to the new coach's style to get in his good races so he can trust that you'll play, but also winning the freaking block. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're getting get paid to do. And so my story from earlier was I signed uh, my first free agency time. Just a lot of BS happened. I ended up signing with Cincinnati for a year. I'm there with Paul Alexander. And he is trying to get me to double under like Andrew Whitworth. Andrew Whitworth is 6'7". His shoulders are as broad as a house. <laughs> and he's 3'20". Three, I'm the same weight, but I'm barely 6'4". I'm a quicker guy. I have 
you know, long arms, I use, I use my quickness more. That's just more of what I do. And I am trying in the midst of off season and camp to find some stupid middle ground between what Paul Alexander wants and what my body naturally can do. And it generally didn't work out very well. Like I played, I almost started three games there, but I came in a lot and, 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 uh, you know, in games for injuries and stuff like that. I had a few good games, but a couple of really bad ones that I was literally in my head. There's a, a, a battle going on. I did not figure it out before the game started what I was really set on doing. And that's because I, I was young and, but also it's a, it's a fit. So when you're talking about pre-draft guys, so much of it is scheme fit and also fit for what the O-line coach who you have there wants to do. Cause there's some coaches who, yeah, they're, they want you to do it their way. I would even imagine there are coaches, I, I don't know if you ever had any, Mitch, who would rather you do it their way and the block not go as well, but you did it their way than just win the block. And it sounds stupid. It sounds absurd, but there are people out there that exist like that. And so as a player, especially if you you, know, you didn't have any OGs in the room, any older vets, you didn't have anybody tell you how this was going to be from a, a political, social as- aspect of relationship with your coach, you're sitting there like, I don't know what to do. And so practice by practice, you're trying to do what they are asking you to do, but it's at odds with what your body naturally does well. And so there's some people that don't find that balance. They don't find themselves, remake themselves into what wins and what works and what a coach could live with. And so to me, a fit is such a bigger thing than just the different change in place play speed because eventually you adjust. Most people who stick around, you just find a way. But you have less control almost no control over who you get drafted by. So to me, that's the bigger thing. Yeah, And and going right off of that, Cincinnati's offense line was really good under Paul for a while. He coaches some some funky stuff, but they had massive dudes. They had Whitworth. They had Andre Smith, the right tackle. All of a sudden they draft said who's, you know, six, five, three Oh five. And now he's getting asked to do these techniques that are really meant for guys. Literally you can see it on film here. It's just, it's not going to work. And so there's a reason like that guy gets drafted to the wrong spot. He gets coaching that works for other guys. It doesn't work for him. And after a few years, you know, the rap is, oh, he's a bust as a first rounder. And then he floats around from team to team. And then he's probably trying to find himself and also trying to be good with the new coach and trying to figure it out. And that's one that if he gets drafted somewhere else, he's with a a coach that can teach him a little bit better. Uh, He might've had a longer career. And, you know, I I think back to my first couple of years, I had a really good offensive line coach and George Warhop in Cleveland. And my first year, you know, I feel like the offense probably protected me a little bit. It was a Brad Childress, Pat Shermer, West Coast offense with Brandon Whedon as a rookie quarterback. So a lot of 200 <laughs> jet, a lot of, uh, you know, 94 gut. <laughs> the 40 year old rookie? Doing some, some quick game and some easier things and some chips and, and that stuff. And then my second year, uh, we had Norv Turner. And I remember going into the year, we were facing Miami in week one, Cam Wake. I had way too much time to study him. And I remember watching <laughs> DeMar Dotson, who played him really well. I watched, you know, a couple other guys who played him well. And I'm like, oh, those guys played him well. Like, I need to copy their technique because that worked on Cam Wake and they blocked him well. And these other guys, their techniques didn't work. So, you know, I'm trying to do way too much stuff that first week. I think I gave up three sacks. Uh, <laughs> next week, we play Baltimore. I think I gave up two sacks. And then I actually got better the next week. Technically, they credited me with a sack going up against Minnesota. The DN was at like 11 and a half yards. I don't think it was my fault, but I gave six sacks in three games. And, you know, at this point it's my second year. I'm thinking I'm garbage. They're going to get rid of me. 
luckily I had a coach in Warhop who was just like, Mitch, just forget about everything. Like, we're just going back to the drawing board. We're going to work on your sets. We're going to work on your punch. And the stuff he coached, it was vertical setting, but the, the, the punching was all leverage based. Like we did so much with medicine balls, which I love punching medicine balls because you can tell instantly, um, getting back to that leverage perspective, if you're punching the ball and it's either going like, flat back at the guy who's throwing it to you or upwards that means you're punching with the right leverage you're punching up if you're punching it and the ball's landing at the guy's feet that means you're punching down and you're probably not in a good position to leverage you know we did a lot of they throw a medicine ball at you and you're punching it directly back at them yeah and there's a feedback that basically if you can punch it back between the guy's chest and face that's probably a really good strike and it's reinforcing good leverage you know we did a lot of pass sets with weighted um bags like 25 to 35 pound sandbags mm. which forces your hips to go down you know you can't really like be your upper half like toppled forward if you're not holding this incorrectly you know that reinforces good leverage uh hop used to put on these mitts and we'd punch him with the mitts and he'd start sweating through his hat it was awesome but like again that's <laughs> ingraining independent hands and ingraining proper leverage because he knew how to hold the mitts correctly and so i was really lucky that i had a coach that was just like Mitch, I know you're a really good player. I trust you. You know, we're not going to pull you from the lineup. We're just going to work through this. And sure enough, we just got back to base techniques, like general leverage stuff, not even stuff that was specific to what I'm comfortable with, but a coach who just understands how to coach anybody. And I started to play a lot better. And I think about my story and I think about a guy like Alex Leatherwood in Oakland, who is a really hard worker. He's got great feet. He's strong. Like he has everything you want. And I think he had like one bad half of his first game and they moved him to guard or they pulled him out of the game or something. I don't remember the specifics. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but I do remember they started moving him around, taking him out of the lineup early in his first year. And that just like crushes your psyche when you're, you know, a guy who's a really good player, you get drafted pretty high. You're supposed to be, you know, this really good player right away, especially coming from Alabama, all the success they've had with draft picks at every position. And your coaches basically tell you, Hey, we don't trust you and you're not good enough to play tackle. You need to move to guard because you're not good enough. You know, that's one that gets into the the mindset a little bit, the psyche, but I probably wouldn't have recovered if my coaches started doubting me in my first couple of years when I was in my darkest moments. And, and that's a case where, you know, I think the team maybe didn't have the best plan on how to help him through some struggles that to me were just mechanical. Like those were technique things that he it works really hard. He wants to get better. He loves, you know, playing football. That's something that should have been able to be fixed a, a long time ago. What do you think those mechanical things are with Alex Otherwood? Because he is, if we're doing this as an exercise, he's probably the first name you'd mention. A guy who was a seventh, 17th overall pick and didn't make it even into his second season with the Raiders. I mean, it's the most extreme example outside of somebody like Isaiah Wilson, which that's all off-field stuff. Yeah, to me it was... It was always the punch timing of of the pass set. Like he takes good sets. He's, you know, maybe you could argue his feet are overactive. You know, I'd love to have that problem where my feet were too quick that I could be overactive <laughs> or, you know, you get a little too deep one time and a little uh, not quite as deep the other. I mean, getting back to Lane, there's a genius and, you know, Lane's the quickest guy out there, but he's not necessarily doing the chatter steps that we associate with these like I think that's more of an old school thing, like just kind of move your feet really quickly and go in six inch steps. Um, I think that can get you a little overactive. You know, Lane talks about learning from Jason Peters. They kind of do pass sets and either one big kick or two big kicks. You know, it depends on where the quarterback's going to be, who the guy they're facing, the alignment, all that stuff. But like essentially you're either going to take one big kick and then kind of settle or two big kicks and kind of settle. But you're not just going to like 
military style, da, 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 um, you know, which Leatherwood can can get into as well. So if he was able to maybe take one or two aggressive kicks off the line and then slowly start to settle, he could get to a spot a bit better. And then it just seemed like at the point of contact, like there was just something off. And that's where it gets into being a little bit difficult to figure out, you know, specifically what that thing is. But that's where, again, you get back to using medicine balls, like using uh, there's some like punching bags. I mean, Andy Heck and Kansas City, we use these pop-up bags that are more the defensive line ones where you always see them like slapping them at the combine and stuff. Well, we do that pre-practice. We line up, we take a pass set, another offensive lineman throws the bag at you. It's just kind of ingraining like you have to punch it with the right timing. Otherwise, you can tell if you're late, you can tell if you're early. Um, just those kind of simple things that help teach you what the right timing is for when to throw the hands. And you get that instant feedback because you can see how the bag reacts. And, you know, you can see a guy like me or a guy like Fish and you can see that snap. And then you see the third string guy and you don't quite get the snap and there's some disconnect. So I think in for Leatherwood's case, it was more just kind of smoothing out exactly how to utilize such great athleticism and then just uh, using that and refining kind of that specific punch timing uh, at the top of the rush. Because, again, he has all the tools. He's He's got the mind for it. Like he's a smart guy. He loves learning. Um you know, hopefully he's able to turn around here. And I think he's still on your team maybe. So hopefully he is, yeah. he's able to give you guys some Scott good reps here. Yeah. Uh, the, I wanted to revisit this very, very quickly before we moved on because I, I looked it up when you guys were talking. So Andrew Whitworth was 335 at the Combine, which is like 85th percentile for offensive tackle. Let weight. me tell you, most guys don't lose weight after the Combine. <laughs> so <laughs> so let, right. let's say let's say comfortably he's in the 90th percentile. The two guys that the Bengals drafted that are part of this conversation, Cedric Abubi and Jake Fisher, both of them weighed 305 at the Combine. So both mm-hmm. of them were 24th percentile for offensive yeah. tackle weight compared to Andre Smith, who was also 335, and Andrew Whitworth, who was 335. So again, if we're trying to like do a little fact-finding mission about how some of this stuff happens, that gap is very obvious with Cincinnati. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? Show up for a friend? Show up for yourself? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Showing up for yourself, that's a big one. That's exactly what therapy is. Doing what you need to do. Carving out the time that you need to make sure that you can show up for yourself and take care of what you need. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash maze today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash maze. Marshall, Mitch mentioned Leatherwood and kind of as a specific guy that had some technical deficiencies. Anybody that you have either watched that applies to this group or even guys that you played with that you watched struggle with something similar. Another example of a technical deficiency that was just difficult to work through, even if somebody had the motivation to try to do it. Trying to think of like towards the end of my career, because I was in more of a, you know, veteran role where I could, I'd, I'd observe more and was trying to help guys out. I was in Buffalo briefly. And so I worked, you know, alongside, uh, 
D, I mean, D Doc, who's, he's coming to his own, but works alongside him because we both have similar builds. And then, um, ended up getting traded and I was in Carolina. Um, but since then I've seen, watched Greg Little a little bit and kind of seeing, you know, a guy that traded up for and, and traded capital away and some of the stuff that, you know, he's got everything you want in size and stuff, but there's just a, a disconnect between, you know, what he should be able to do and what he's done a little bit at the college level and, and the NFL. And obviously some of that, he's got concussion stuff going on, but, um, a few guys, there's been plenty of guys over the years where you're just like, all right, I, you're one or two couple things clicking away from this. You, you just being a solid lockdown tackle. Like it's really not that you're not that far removed because you got all the others, the God given stuff. And, um, you know, you, you want to, you, as a vet on, on the squad, you're trying not to usurp an old line coach because they've got their egos and their pride. Um, but you, you know, you try to take a guy off the side, you're like, Hey, you know, I, I see, you know, where you could be. And I hope you understand what you have, but it's going to take you a little bit of work, but it's going to, it's not unattainable. And it's, you know, little things here and there, but they're also, like I said, they're, they're balancing that act of this coach who wants to try to mold me or, you know, he has this perfect way of doing it, quote unquote, in his mind. Uh, uh, and you're trying to level that with, all right, what do I need to do to, to win the block? And so at the time in Buffalo, we had Juan Castillo and then in, um, in Carolina, we had John Matsko. Um, and list, I've had Hall of Fame O-line coaches, but all strong personalities and strong technique types. They, they want what they want. And so I can't imagine being a rookie. You know, I came in as a vet who maybe I'm a little jaded, but I was just like, I can't imagine a guy that a strong personality who's got, had a history, had some, some guys hit. Um, and who's trying to really emphasize what they want to do. And you're sitting here trying to like implement it all. And maybe it's just not clicking. And either that's just because you're not meant to do this at, at your height. Uh, or you're just, there's a disconnect between how the coach is teaching it and how you absorb information. Mitch, anybody else either from either your career or among these guys that were recently drafted that you think is, has a particularly interesting kind of technical story that you think really paints a picture about how this can go. Well, I want to jump on the Juan Castillo point because my coach that I referenced, George Warhop, was a Castillo disciple. I know a little bit about Juan and guys who played with him. It's a very, very specific vertical setting technique. Like, it's very specific, but he also is a freaking grinder. And, you know, he's going to get every single minute that the CPA allows to get you out on that field <laughs> and to coach you. And he's going to utilize it. You know, he came to talk to us when he was actually unemployed, I think, right after he left Buffalo. And he was saying that he felt like he slacked off because he only worked 16 to 18 hours a day. You know, he needs to get back to working 19 to 20 hours a day. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Marshall's laughing because he understands. So, like, Juan is just a work, work, work guy. And he marries being able to teach the techniques that he wants with, you know, the guys that he's coaching. Like, there are some guys whose bodies don't work with vertical setting. Um, you know, I see it a lot. And you can tell based on stance like guys who have super narrow stances um with their stagger basically means that like they can't vertical set and they're just trying to get like their feet as stacked as they can so they can just push straight back um i think one of the things that's lost in the joe thomas stance is most people assume that he actually had a really narrow stance because that left foot is so far behind him but the left foot was always kind of outside his left hip so he always had a bit of width to him mm. and bakhtiari like you think of him and his wow. stance he his left foot's doing like, the splits like yeah. like crazy wide, but it doesn't yeah. necessarily look like that on first glance on the on the TV copy because it's so far back. You just think it's this like you know kind of crazy split stance, and you're going to use it to push off. And 
to me, that's a technical thing where when guys are being asked to vertical set, um, the coach isn't necessarily giving them the right tools or they're being too strict with it has to be 100% vertical. Like, vertical, there's vertical enough. You know, your left foot, if you're a right tackle, my left foot doesn't have to be completely vertical every single step. Like, if I'm on a hash... Explain vertical in that context. Yeah, so there's vertical in terms of a pass set you know for me as a right tackle um you know my left foot is going to be the one that's up it's going to be the one i'm pushing off the right foot's behind me so a vertical set to most coaches that left foot you know would never go more right of where i am in my pass set than where it originally aligned i would just literally be going straight back basically towards my own end zone um and i think the coaches that are really strict about that and don't allow six to 12 inches of play with that, you know, kind of ruin guys because it's extremely difficult to get a guy to be purely vertical setting. Unless you're a Juan Castillo who's coached for forever, or George Warhop, and you understand the mechanics of it. You know, Warhop coached vertical setting. He coached pass setting different than anyone I've ever seen because he adapted it to the vertical set. You know, most guys think of like, a kick slide that's a term you normally hear where you know you're kind of making that kick with your outside foot and then your inside foot is sliding along with it hop hated that he didn't teach you know kick slide kick slide he taught individual steps so you know you'd kick out for me again as the right tackle my right foot's back i'd push off my left and instead of just letting that left foot go wherever it needed to he would coach individually that left leg has to like pull back and it has to pull back and pull back. And if you do this and you're not used to it, your left glute and your left hamstring go on fire because <laughs> you're not used to training those. But it's every pass set is basically two steps. Most guys teach one kick, two kicks, three kicks. For hop, three kicks is six steps because they all have to work individually and that footwork has to mesh with how to actually vertical set. And that's where you're teaching a guy how to properly vertical set. And I've seen coaches and really good coaches who teach vertical sets they like the idea of it. They know that it's good against TEs or it's good against certain uh, defensive fronts. They don't quite know how to teach it. They force their guys to you know, stringently uh, adhere to the vertical set without giving them the tools on how to actually accomplish that. The guy starts messing with the stance. He doesn't trust it. He's uncomfortable. And that's when, again, things kind of go mentally and you don't have that confidence. Um, you know, That gets back into tipping stances and all these other things. But like, I'd rather the defender know that it's a pass if my offense alignment is comfortable. Because if you're uncomfortable in a run stance or a balance stance, you're probably not going to be successful anyway. So enabling an offense alignment with whatever technique you're using uh, to be comfortable, I think is you know one of the most important points that probably coaches lose um, when they're not able to both have techniques that are kind of meshing with just general principles and also when they're not able to adapt uh, certain techniques to certain guys. Marshall, you said you played for eight offensive line coaches. How how prevalent do you think it is in the NFL where if you're a guy who needs a little bit of extra work, if you're a project, if you need a really strong development plan, what percentage of offensive line coaches are you just DOA? Like it's just not going to happen based on who your offensive line coach is in your estimation. Uh, it's a low percentage. Okay. I mean, there's, they, they have the, the will and the want to, and whether it's, you know, whether they stood up on a table for you in the draft room or the war room or something, or, they wanted to sign you in free agency or whatever. Most of the coaches they want them to get it right and work and work it through. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll use this opportunity to argue about limitations of the CBA and all that stuff. But cause, you know, back in the day, they, they got us in February and they, they could spend hours out outside in the field and they, they think that that was, you know, the sa- the saving grace for some guys. And it might have been, but you know, most of them want to get it right, but it's, you know, 
there is very, there's not as much patience as you would like because you're talking about getting drafted at 2021. Uh, there's linemen that don't come into their own until like 25, 26, 27. It's a strength thing. It's just an awareness thing. It's like a, a confidence in who I am and, and, and what I, you know, my strengths and playing into those. And by that time, you might have been given up on. They might have taken a couple of years and they might have, they might have just given up on you. And so, uh, yeah, just, I think there's a will to, but I don't know if, if, if there's as much of a, a universal understanding that, you know, this specific position just takes away more time than most. Uh, and, you know, Mitchell can attest to this. Like we, so much is like in the grading system of each particular, uh, team and coach and offense. And that is like sometimes like the death knoll, which sometimes doesn't matter. Like, we, we grade wins, even if it's the ugliest win, and we grade losses, even if it's the ugly, if the prettiest loss, but we're just trying to win blocks. And when it's the opposite, when we're catering to like perfect technique and did you do it exactly the way I need you to do it? Then guys lose the force for the trees and they're like, well, what is my version of success? What does success look like? Is it me winning the, 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 the rep or is it me doing exactly what they needed me to do? Like there's a coach who I won't name, who I played for, who, he had a very specific technique that was, it was just a pre-snap technique. It was a, it was a aesthetic. And it was like in the line, we will all look at each other like, what the hell are we? Why is this so harped on that has no effect on any of our sets? Uh, you might be able to guess. I don't know. Uh, bitch. yeah. But I, yeah, I know. He also taught it's uh, a super bowl. It's a super bowl winning offensive line coach. And you're like, if when I, if I, I'll tell you off camera, I'm just, you're just like, wait, why did that matter? And I, because he won with guys and they bought into a little bit and they did it, it had no bearing on their success. Tell him, and so you see us on film, huh? Tell him how he taught defeating bull rushes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. He taught it by you see a bull rush that you headbutt back into the bull rush. Like you proactively headbutt the bull rush. And then you drive them and, three yards. And he wanted and then you guys turn to into practice a run this block. against each other. And you're just sitting there like, I don't know how to like square what is to me complete and utter bullshit with like, I need to win. I need to do well in practice. I'm trying to earn a spot. I'm trying to show my teammates that I can, you know, add value to the team. And this guy's teaching me this stuff that he's convinced is the reason he's been so successful because he's got a Super Bowl ring. And you're like, God, I, you know, what, what do I do? And so, you know, ultimately you acquiesce a little bit, but you also kind of just like say, screw it. I'm just going to try to win the block. And, uh, it's, it's, it's wild, but you know, most coaches ha- are good or well-intentioned, but you know, well-intentioned can still mean negative effects to some people if it's just, they're not handled right. Mitch, there was one other guy that I, I think you wanted to talk about specifically with some of this stuff that again, was a first round player that didn't really work out. He actually just got a very, very modest second deal to go to Tennessee, but that's Andre Dillard. Yeah. That's an understatement on that contract. Um, I think <laughs> he's an interesting one to look at because, you know, Stoutland is considered the best offensive line coach, if not top three with, you know, Callahan. Yeah, and very Pauly. far removed from the conversation we just had. Right. right? Like, so you it's can't, like, you're not going to lay it at Jeff Stoutland's feet that Andre Diller didn't work right. out. So right now it's probably Stoutland, Callahan and Heck are probably the top three that, that people talk about a lot. And Dillard is probably the only guy he hasn't been able to quote unquote develop. And so you wonder what's going on there. And Dillard was a guy that he came out and he's got the beautiful feed. He's got the pitter patter and they're super quick and everything. The questions were, 
kind of offensive structure. You know, he came from Washington State and he was running a, a spread system. And so his splits are super wide, which is one thing. He played against some, you know, kind of old school odd defenses where he had four techniques head up on him and he didn't really have to show, you know, as good a pass sets. Um, you know, the play strength aspect of it, again, is are the splits so wide that you can kind of get bull rush to, you know, it's really an unacceptable level, but you're not close enough to the quarterback because you align so wide, which is why every tackle loves aligning as wide as you can. Um, and so he's a guy that just didn't pan out. And I would say his technique style is more of the finesse, like I'm going to be super quick, but he doesn't have the hands that a lot of finesse guys do. He has the hands of big guys and he wants to play a little bit more catchy and more double under. And he landed in a spot where he's watching Jason Peters, who's refuses to step on a scale but i would imagine most of the time the dillard was there that first number was a four not a three and he's watching freak show lane johnson do the same technique uh to great success and you know i don't specifically know what stalin teaches his tackles i'd imagine he kind of leaves his starters alone but again he's watching my who comes in and plays over him at six eight three sixty five who's another one of the, the top freaks and so whether dillard is trying to copy these guys but doesn't have the body for it or he's trying to adapt to a new technique you know i never really saw him kind of adapt to a true punching style technique or a style that um really mirrors with what his athletic skill set looks like you know for guys who are you know in the six four six five 300 to 310 region who are super quick you know that's where you can vary your sets as much as you want because you have the athletic ability to counter to inside moves you can you know maybe get your as a left tackle left hand swiped around the corner but you're quick enough to not just give up the corner you can still run a guy around the pocket 11 or 12 yards which is acceptable and so he just never figured out how to mesh a punching style that's a little bit more you know traditional to his athletic profile and you know, it's hard to know where to place blame. Like, is it Stalin? Is it Dillard? Is it a combination of the two? Were there other things, you know, we talked about a little bit, we haven't really touched on is a guy just not willing to learn? Is he not willing to try stuff? Like, I don't know specifically, I haven't talked to anyone there. So this isn't me putting anything on the situation. But those are the situations that makes you wonder because the guy was productive in college, he's got a good enough athletic profile to be a, a tackle. Uh, he was playing guard and tackle there both on the left side, which is his preferred side. You know, they like refused to move him to right tackle. I think maybe they had Lane at one point kick out to left tackle because Dillard was like truly a left side guy. And it's really rare to have a team realize that you can only play one side of the line. And Philadelphia was aware enough that they knew Dillard could only play left tackle or left guard that I think they were like flirting or they might have moved Lane to the left side just or whatever it was, maybe they moved Peters to the right side to allow Dillard to play left tackle. Whatever it was, like they knew he could only play left side. So like they were aware of these deficiencies. You got the top O line coach, if not top three O line coach in the NFL, a team that's developed every single offensive lineman they've touched, and just something didn't quite pan out. And um again, that makes me think, is there more to the mental side of it that you just you won't know unless you're in that room? Um, but that's where maybe we can take the talk next is is what are those mental components that can derail offensive line uh you know, development and play. That's exactly what I was going to do with or go with Marshall. What would you start with? What would you say is probably the main mental hurdle or main mental barrier that creeps up for guys? Uh, you know, I think it happens with any competitive athlete. It's just a, a, a lapse in, in confidence because you don't get to this place without some element of some being supremely confident because you've done it at, at the highest level in college and you've been recruited and you've been drafted and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, uh, it could be a bad 
game. It could be a bad week of practice. You never know. Or it could be a coach who's berating you and is, is, you know, kind of giving you the cold shoulder. It could be a a multitude of things in the facility. And obviously not to say what's going on off, off the field. Uh, but yeah, confidence. I mean, I, at my best, um, I knew that I had the best get off in our, on the offensive line. I, I had timed whatever quarterback I was playing with at the moment. There was a lot of them. I had figured out his cadence or I had figured out my center's head bob or silent count. I had the best get off. I could get to my spot. I had the hands and feet to recover and I had studied my opponent. Uh, and I knew kind of, you know, the two or three things they're going to do. And I knew the ball was going to be gone in three and a half to four seconds most of the time. And so that confidence juxtaposed with times where I, you know, I was, you know, playing out of position or didn't have as much time to prep as I'd hoped. Um, I was, you're going against a really good player. You had a weird week of practice. Your body's not feeling right. You don't know where you stand in the coaches and the, in the team's eyes and you go in and your body genuinely shows it. It's, it's sometimes it's just hard to overcome. And that mental, that mental confidence, literally as, as a tackle and a lineman, you could win a block by taking a great set and just being in the way. So much of this, of that game, it's just, it's that simple. Being in the way in the right way and you win. Like you could have, could have been bad feet, bad hands, but you're there and you know, the ball's gone. Like that happens a lot. And to have, you know, something like that, that is pretty cut and dry and still struggle. Uh, there's really got to be something that's just off about kind of how you've approached it and how you're, you know, are you holding on to bad snaps? Uh, the next drive, like, are you know, are, are you, be, are you able to flush it short term? Uh, are you able to kind of self correct, uh, and, and adapt mid game? You know, I, I, this isn't working today. I'm, I'm shooting my, my outside hand at his chest instead of at his outside shoulder. When he swipes, I'm off balance. Uh, you know, are, you know, am I, t- am I tipping off my stance? Is it not even like little stuff? So that usually you can course correct, especially as you progress, you know, in age and experience. But there's just times when you're just like, man, I've lost sight of what's gotten me here and the confidence. And I can and doubly so when you're a young guy, there's no one you're, you're, you're kind of solo. You're, you're there just like figuring it out. And sometimes it's painful. There's fire. There's, there's ridicule. You're probably paying too much attention to Twitter and all kinds of stuff. And so it's, it could be a, a snowball effect. And if there's not a coach there or a mentor there or an OG who can kind of help you just be like, shake it out of you a little bit. Remind you of what you can do and get back to work and, you know, an efficient, optimized work. Then there's guys who we, you know, we laud as, you know, what's happened? What's wrong with this guy? But it just might be a little thing that we just have no idea about. Next thing you know, three teams later, maybe he figures it out like, oh, this, what a redemption story. Like, well, no, he just, he had a chance to kind of look inward and he had a good coach and he had a good system and things were aligned really, really well. And it could be that it could be something like that. And so it's just a, it, not to get too granular, but sometimes it just it could be where your headspace is. Yeah, I, I want to I'm going to jump in real quick. So you said a lot of really interesting points there, and one thing that probably doesn't ever get talked about is you said a bad week of practice, and so there's a big disconnect between what the coaching staff wants to see from a scout team and what the offensive line wants the scout team defensive line to do. So basically every offensive lineman will tell you, you just want the go, the guy to go 80 to 90%, give you a move or two. And just like, that's it. Like scout that week of practice is about me preparing myself for what I'm going against. 
for some guys, especially when you're younger in your career, you're just, you're taking pass sets and you're trying to work technique. Like it's not specific. It's not, oh, I'm going against Khalil Mack and he long arms a lot. So I'm going to work a Hamilton this week. It's just like, I'm just going to take my pass set and try to ingrain this good technique and, you know, whatever happens, happens. Obviously guys on scout team are not the starters on the defensive side. So they're either lower on the roster or they're on the practice squad and they're trying to get playing time. They're trying to show the coaches they need to stick around. And so there are some guys, I mean, we used to call them saboteurs or, um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of names for, for guys like that, but they just don't give a shit. And I mean, to be fair, it's their right to do whatever they think they need to do to make a football team and to make a career. Like I understand that. Um, and the coaching staff typically loves that because they want that guy to go super hard to give the tackle a good look and all the stuff. And for the most part, those guys never make it on an NFL like roster because whatever they do somehow works in practice and just doesn't work in games. And so you just want the guy to go 80 to 90% still be somewhat realistic and give you a look, you know, as you get older in your career, Hey, I'm going against this guy this week. He does a lot of this move. Can you show me a lot of these? And you can kind of get that work in at, you're basically going full speed. He's going slightly slower. It gives you a fuck ton of confidence that like, yeah, I've landed this move a bunch of times this week. I feel really good about the game plan. And that's how you want to enter a week. And, you know, you've got certain players that you go against who just kind of ruin your confidence all week. And then you start doubting your set. You start doubting, you know, other things. To me, the stupidest thing that I've seen coaches do, like by far the stupidest thing, is you're going against a quick, fast guy, and they have the defense alignment align like a foot off sides so that he can mimic like oh, getting to the corner Jesus. at a certain spot where like they think Von Miller is going to be. It's like, all right, you're just telling this tackle, just freak the fuck out before the play starts and panic and do something that you're not going to do in a game and your body's not used to. Um, so yeah, we all have these kind of stories of, uh, what practice is like throughout the week and what we'd prefer to see in practice throughout the week, um, and to feel confident going into the game. And that's also where, you know, Marshall's talked about being a veteran and kind of what a veteran offense alignment looks like in the role. Essentially your role, whether you're, you're playing, you know, I was always playing until I was hurt. And so for the most part, I'm still a veteran who's trying to help young guys and trying to make them, uh, better. You're meshing your experience of your playing career and all the other coaches you've worked with to your system, the guy you're talking to in that moment who's playing on your team and the coaching he's getting. And you're trying to kind of make it collaborative and whether you're trying to ingrain what the coach is trying to get out of him, you're maybe giving him something like, hey, try this, which is a little different way to think of it than maybe you're used to or, you know, hey, I know coach is asking you to do this. Um you should just try this other thing that I think might work for you and, you know, see where it goes. You can go up to them because, again, as a first, second, third year guy, especially if you're struggling, you don't have the confidence to go to your coach and say, hey, what you're coaching isn't working me, <laughs> working for me. You know, no, no, no second year player who's struggling unless you're just a total dick is going to walk into the office and be like, your, your coaching sucks. But like, you can talk to them and say, hey, you know, coaches love when you go to them and say, Hey, I'm struggling with this thing that you're coaching me. Like, I want to figure it out. Like, how, how can we make it work? And so you go up to that guy and you say, Hey, like, go up to your coach and say, you know, I know I'm working on my outside hand a lot. Like, I'm really struggling with it. I don't know what else to do. Like, is it okay if I try this other thing? Is it, is there something else you can help me to figure out for your technique? But like, the coach wants to be empowered to help you as well. And so that's where if you're a veteran and you kind of know, 
either you can teach that guy yourself or kind of walk him through how to approach the coach. And again, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go into his office while he's studying film. Like it can be on the field after a, a practice set when you're all just kind of standing there, but go up to him and be like, Hey, I'm working on this thing. I'm really struggling with it. Like, is there anything else that we can try to do to, to make it work? Or can I try this other thing I've done in the past? And that's where older guys who have been through it and seen a lot of stuff, you can really help younger guys. And, you know, they're not going to pay you to be a veteran in the locker room. Like they don't, you know, the NFL doesn't pay just to have older guys around for that purpose. Cause I don't think they even realize, you know, exactly how valuable an older guy can be who understands. Um, but that is the benefit to having some old guys in the uh, offensive line room who've been around and who've seen a lot of different things. The confidence part, I think obviously is important for a lot of different athletes, but for offensive linemen, I think it's particularly important because on a football level, I think that offensive line, maybe outside of quarterback and maybe you could throw a corner in there, is probably the most fragile position on a football field in terms of like how it playing with assertiveness and playing with confidence and how important every aspect of like the chain of movement is and how fast it can go to shit and how apparent that is. Yeah, so I'm yeah. not sure it's more obvious than offensive line. No, so I'm gonna so what I always tell people, if the guy I'm going against gets one sack a game he now has 17 sacks in the season. He's an all-pro. He's the best at his position, and he's the best player in the NFL. If I give up one sack a game, I'm cut, and I'm no longer in the NFL. Like, yeah. that's the margin of error. Like, I can't give up one sack a game. That guy, if he gets one sack a game, he's the best in the NFL at what he does. And, you know, there, there's a very big difference between those two and kind of puts into perspective for people that don't quite understand, like, just how difficult it is. And talking about that understanding of, all right, where is my body going? How much awareness do I have about how it's moving? If there is any like sand in the microchip there, that stuff can even be thrown off. So it just feels like the fragility of it at this position is so pronounced that if you're a guy, let's use Austin Jackson as an example, right? Austin Jackson's a first round pick. He has four different offensive line coaches in like his first three seasons. He's hurt a little bit. If a small injury derails your development plan, if changing offensive line coaches derails your development plan, like again, the fragility of this seems like a really big deal, even when you compare it to other positions, Marshall. Yeah, definitely. And I'll, I'll, I'll give an example of one that's worked out well, a guy who I played with in Carolina, Taylor Moten. Taylor Moten, if you ever meet him and talk to him, um, you're like, this guy, I know he cares about football, but he's, his, he has such a compartmentalized way of going about it where when he leaves, he's thinking about his family and, you know, what movies he's going to watch or whatever his, his interests are. You can very much tell that he has segmented his life in that way. And then when he's in the, when he's on the practice field, he's literally the most, we say robotic pejoratively and like it's such a bad thing. He is truly consistently setting the same all the time. And it has made him one of the most consistent tackles in the league. And you, you do it at practice. He does it at practice and I'm watching him and he's still, I think that was his first or second year. And you're like, man, I wish I could literally clear my brain, clear my CPU and just like get to the spot every time, have some variant, but like really just like hone in and like get time after time after time, just be consistent. And he's a guy, a younger guy who despite he had Coach Matsko, who has a very specific style, tailor, tailor whatever he needed to do to his body type at right tackle with his hands and his feet, and he just is consistent. Like, boringly, like, yawn consistent, but it works. And, there, and defensive ends hate going against him. 
Because it's like you can't rattle him. You're not going to get him to overset the next time. You're not going to get him to overcommit to a bull. Like he's just going to be where he's going to be. He's strong and he's like capable and you got to deal with that. And guys hate that. They hate that you can't rattle him. You hate that he he doesn't talk crap on the field and that you can't get under his skin because he's like, I don't even know who you are. I barely know your name. I'm just doing my thing. And there's an element to that of, of each guy catering to his own personality. That's Taylor's personality. And, but it translates to consistency on the field and consistency in this technique. And I envy that. I hope, I wish more young guys could find a sense of that. Even speaking to my younger selves, a sense of just like this, the monotony, uh, of that, of your technique, which we just have to do it over and over again. And, you know, there's a rep part to it, but there's just like the confidence of just like, let me just go do it and I'm win most of these times. And if I lose, I lose. It won't snowball. I'll keep doing it the next time. And I'll end up, you know, getting Pro Bowl votes or I'll end up getting a second, third contract. That's all I care about. I'm helping my team win. Pretty point blank period. Snowball is a good word. I, th- I think yeah. that's kind of what I was referring to is that at this position, it feels like it could snowball faster than pretty much any other position than quarterback. That's what it feels like to me. And I think, yeah. again, it speaks to the fragility of it. Mitch, any other parting thoughts here uh, about people thing takeaway people should have about why these struggles can happen and what to keep in mind as we're watching this next class of offensive tackles come in and try to navigate these waters? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is always everyone cares. Like, no one wants to go out there and suck and be awful. Um, you know, I'm guessing most of your listeners aren't going to be the ones who are uh, tweeting people and, and posting nasty messages, but like, for the most part, I mean, we touched on Isaiah Wilson. That seems to be the one outlier where, like, just didn't care about football and wanted to do whatever else he wanted to do. Like, everyone else wants to be good, and it's really disappointing when you're not good. And especially as a first-rounder, you have that kind of uh, hype around your name and expectations. Like, these guys are trying. Like, it's it's really difficult. Um, you know, you're either not confident like we keep talking about and you're struggling there there's some sort of frustration because your technique doesn't match up what the coach wants to teach um maybe you're just not quite good enough like there are instances where a guy can do everything right but he's just not quite strong enough not quite quick enough whatever um and it doesn't work out so i would just say you know have some understanding like there's a reason that the hit rates are so low on basically every position like it's just extremely difficult and if six tackles are taken this year you know Two are going to be really good, two are going to be average, and two are going to suck. And unfortunately, you know, might be the guy on your team, but I guarantee you he's trying. I guarantee you he's trying to become a good player. And, you know, the last thing I'll probably say is tackle elitist here. Um, You know, whenever a tackle sucks, you can always say, hey, let's kick him down to guard. He might be okay. Uh, You never heard anyone say, hey, this guard sucks. Let's kick him out to tackle and he'll be all right. So just remember that, you know, your offensive tackles are always better than your offensive guards. Attaboy. boy, Marshall. Any parting thoughts here? I just love. I, I, I'm all for the pettiness. I'm, I'm here for it. Um, yeah, I would just say, you know, if you're a fan, if you're listening to this, this is very niche right now. But if you're a fan, oh of my your god, team, this podcast is for ten it people. Couldn't, it couldn't get more niche. But you know, pay attention to you know these guys. I, I, I was doing a Big Twelve show about talking about the Big Twelve linemen that are going to go high, and pay attention to what a fit looks like for your for that tackle or guard taken. Um, and understand that, like, like Mitch said, hey, he's, he's trying, he's learning. It's literally drinking from a fire hose for the first 
18 months of your NFL career. You, you don't know which way is up. You're, they're trying everything out. You're figuring out how to be on time and be a professional and, and, you know, earn your place. And there's so much going on, but pay attention to the fit. Like if you know your team is trying to run a lot of power and you've drafted a guy from the Pac 12 who threw oh. 50 times a game. Well, hey, Big 12 too. Maybe nah, Big 12. You, but <laughs> maybe he didn't have his hand in the dirt for, but for 5% of the time. Like, that is not an indicator that he's not going to be successful, but it's going to take time to, it's going to take an adjustment period. And for some guys, it'll be longer than others. Like Mitch said, some guys aren't going to be good enough. They're going to, some, you know, some front office got it wrong on their, you know, their draft place. Uh, but, you know, understand that that's, there's just such a, a, a you know, a picking process that guys go through and that teams are, are figuring out. And that's why it is such an imperfect science is, is talent evaluation. And why I don't know what the if there's a com- compounding percentage of hit rate, it's astronomically low. It's so hard to get it get it right, uh, especially as a lineman, offensive tackle, guard, center. So have perspective in that. Uh, you know, understand guys are trying. Understand that there's just so much variance to what goes into being a successful NFL offensive lineman. Yeah, and also just to jump in, like perfection's not going to happen. Even like you know, your best guys, you draft a first rounder, you kind of assume he's going to be the tackle for 12 years. Like the position's really hard and you're going to have bad games. You're going to have bad reps. You're going to get beat by these freakazoids who are 6'8", 285, who run four fours and can bench 800 pounds. Like you're going to lose and that's okay. And, you know, you're going to have a couple plays that maybe the quarterback was too deep and, you know, the fans don't necessarily know about that aren't your fault. Like just have some perspective that like, you know, a quarterback is... If he's 21 for 30, that's a good game. But an offensive tackle, if he's 21 for 30, that's an awful game. Like, there's this perspective that, like, not everything's going to be perfect. Losses are okay. Like, you're okay to struggle against good competition. Um, there are guys who are going to be elite. And, you know, those are few and far between. The offensive line position is a lot harder than it's ever been. So, also, just adjust your expectations as a fan and as a viewer, especially when you're watching your own team and you just want your guys to be so good. Like, guys are going to fail. Guys are going to have bad plays. It's okay. That doesn't mean that the world's going to fall. And, you know, if you're able to give that support to the player and, you know, they can see that, you know, they're also going to get that from their uh, their teammates, their coaching staff, all that. Like, it becomes this well-rounded thing where things don't snowball. They flourish. And it's like, hey, I lost. It's okay. The world's not going to end. Like I can keep going. Um, so just you know, it's okay if a guy loses every once in a while. Like that happens. I have one more thing before you before you wrap. If there's any coordinators out there listening, run more play action. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, there's your hour long podcast about offensive line <laughs> minutia and how it contributes to the success or failure of young players around the league. Uh, I've said this before. It was just an immense mistake for this company to put me in charge of programming their <laughs> NFL podcast. Like I can't even describe how misguided this idea was. In the, for now, really, really appreciate you guys listening. We will be back on Monday with our very good friend Bill Barnwell. We're going to be talking about a little recent draft history and some stuff that we can learn from it. So very excited about that. If you have not listened to the podcast about this year's draft group with Dane and Brandon Thorne. That is available for you guys right now. Please go check that out. It was really fun recording with those guys. In the meantime, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. If you like the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. I would consider it a personal favor. It would mean a lot to me, so please do that. 
please subscribe to The Athletic, where you can read all of our wonderful draft coverage, including access to Dane Brugler's draft guide, The Beast, which is like 700 pages long and has the most in-depth reports on every single guy in the draft. And I don't understand how it's actual conceivably possible for him to finish this every single year, but somehow he does. Theathletic.com slash football show is where you can get that subscription. We'll be back on Monday. Enjoy your guys' weekend. We will talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app.